the conductor's there with the orchestra, and in back of the orchestra is the big screen with the film on it, and uh, with, the, with the movie. And the conductor would watch that, and they have all kinds of symbols uh, running along on the screen, uh, the slash, bleep, 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 lights, to indicate to the conductor where he should be at one point with the music, because you have to time. Everything has to be timed so that they always say you, you, you play music for the closing of a door. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family, and part two of our podcast featuring violinist and conductor Stuart Kanan. In this part, Mr. Kanan talks about his work for the San Francisco Symphony and the Los Angeles Opera. He also discusses the unique demands that come with performing and serving as concertmaster for some of the most important film score composers of our age. So you came back from the war. You've had all these experiences. You're now going to get, hopefully, a better violin. Yes. So tell yes. me about the first violin that oh, came into your hands first, and you said, this first, is a violin. first violin I had uh, was a Gennaro Galliano, which was a very fine violin. Made where Made, made in, in uh, Italy between 1740 and 1750, but a very fine violin, yeah. And that was what I won the, the Paganini competition on. Oh, and, tell us about that. Yeah, I, I bought the violin in, in 53 or 54, and in 1959, I was teaching at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa, and I saw the ad for the Paganini competition, and I saw the repertoire, and I could play the repertoire. It was what I was doing at the moment. Were they so, all? Pa- they weren't all Paganini pieces. No, no, pieces. no, no. The no. entire gamut: Bach, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, everything. Uh, but Paganini was certainly part of it. So, I went across to Genoa, Italy. I think it was my first time besides Potsdam on a plane <laughs> when when they they flew us to Tempelhof. But anyway, we went across. I went across, and I won the competition. And the Italian papers never heard of Iowa, so they used to spell it. J O W A Yova, <laughs> Yova City, Yova. <laughs> I guess the I O doesn't well Yo, but it's anyway whatever. They I I, I still have those clippings that say Yova City. <laughs> so I won the competition. I was teaching at the University of Iowa music department. That was my first position uh, in the music profession. Can I go back to this yeah. when you bought this violin? Yeah. How could you afford to buy a violin like that? Well, that's interesting. As you know, inflation has taken hold. And when Rembrandt painted a picture, he didn't get $150 million for it. He got, you know... Who knows what he got? Maybe a couple of cows or or a heifer or, or something. So inflation has taken place. So when I bought my violin, I was teaching at the University of Iowa. And and I could I could afford it. It was just things were in more in in tune with each other. You know, you, houses were not 
there was an old joke on one of the talking heads in Los Angeles. I remember Michael Jackson, not the famous Michael. Was a, he was a radio, uh, he had a radio program. The guy was complaining, he was talking with, he said, you know, they don't build $150,000 homes anymore. And Michael said, oh, yes, they do. He said, they do? He said, yeah, but they cost a million now, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I thought is about <laughs> what, what happens to, the, you know, to inflation. So I could afford it, and I bought it, and, uh, and I was very happy with it. And I went to uh, Genoa, and I won the competition. Do you remember what shop you bought it from? Yes, I bought it from uh, Emil Hermann, and Emil Hermann was probably the through his hands passed most of the great violence of the of the big makers and what he, was happening after the war because this was this was 19 i got married 50? in 1952 yeah so what i'm thinking is you you have this um you know you have the war which devastates europe and much of asia and the american economy is so strong and so dominant and the dollar is so strong right. And almost what's happening now in China, back then the good instruments were coming here. Yeah, that's right. Because there that's was money. Right. Exactly. Because this is this was the only country that hadn't been damaged by the war. So also a great time to get great good time. Yeah. So all my friends were, were were buying instruments at that time. So we all you know we all bought them, and that served me until I got a better fiddle, which I have today. I want to hear what your career was, and we talked about the word using classical, so there's sort of the classical uh, positions that you were able to uh, take on uh, with orchestras and and, in teaching, and then there's this other side, which is really, almost going back to Fred Allen, the entertainment world, uh, film scores, this kind of uh, use of (laughs) violin. Well, that came much later, the film scores. So so, uh, why don't you just give me kind of a little... uh, uh, journey through how each step came well, up. Well, okay, my first my first position was a, a professor of violin at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa, and I loved it. Iowa is is just a wonderful state. We even go we go back all the time now to visit friends, and and coincidentally, my son Ethan is on the faculty of the University of Iowa. He's a, he's a professor at the Writers' Workshop, which is a, a very famous uh, writing school at the university. Anyway, I stayed there, and then when I won the Paganini, I began to get other offers. And uh, Oberlin uh, Conservatory, which was certainly a notch up uh, from Iowa at that point, as, with, as far as students were concerned, I got an invitation to go there. We accepted it moved to Oberlin, Ohio, stayed there for five years, and I began to get the itch to play again. I, I, of course, I was playing at the universities, and the, but I wanted to get on the stage. I just had that. When you're at a college, you're playing for the same audience day in and day out. You know, there's always the same people come to the concerts. Of course, there's a limited audience, small town and all that. So I took a position as concertmaster of something called the Chamber Symphony of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, conducted by Ancho Brusilov, a fine conductor. And I stayed there for two years, and it was a little, uh, and I took a leave of absence from Oberlin 
But my wife said, you know, we're not going back <laughs> because you love this too much. This is, uh, you're, you're playing for different audiences all the time. You're playing in the Academy of Music in, in Philadelphia. And did you feel it improved your music? Oh, yes. Yeah, because I was in the profession. I was, I mean, nothing wrong with being a teacher. I mean, uh, I, I still have been doing that. But there's nothing like playing and hearing applause after, after, a, after a performance in a, in a good concert hall. So then someone told me that there was an opening in San Francisco for a concertmaster. Seiji Ozawa was the Japanese conductor. Mm. And I was able to go out there and play for him, and he offered me the job right on the spot. I, I played for him in a in a hidden hotel room. <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah, tell me more of that story, the details. <laughs> well, and what he was like, because he's, he's a legend. Yeah, he is a legend. Uh, he was a funny guy. He didn't speak too much English at the time, but I remember him saying, you're my man. You're my man. <laughs> Just like that. After I finished playing, he had me play some Mozart, Mozart concerto. He said, you're my man. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I became concertmaster of the uh, San Francisco Symphony for uh, 10 years. And uh, and what, what years was that, 60? That, that was 70, 69 to, or 70 to, to 80. Okay. Those 10 years. And, and then, San Francisco is like, there was a lot going on in San Francisco well, at that time. <laughs> yes, yes. I was very happy in San Francisco. But I tell you something, when you work for a nonprofit organization, you're not making the best salary that you have to. And I had two children in medical school, which was taking a ton of money from the family <laughs> coffers. And I decided I needed to work for a profit organization. And I had a lot of friends in Hollywood who were working for the film studios. How had you made those friends? Oh, these were friends from law of long standing, from my early days. They had moved out to Hollywood. A couple of very close friends had moved to Hollywood because they saw the handwriting on the wall way before I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that Hollywood, you know, pays a little better than than a symphony orchestra. So we just, my wife and I decided we'd leave. So we left San Francisco and moved to Hollywood. And right away, because of my background as concertmaster of the San Francisco Symphony, bang, I walked right in and I became chief guy for John Williams, uh, Alan Silvestri, uh, Randy Newman. I became their concertmaster. You know. oh, for Randy Newman, one of my... Well, one of my favorites. Delightful human being. One of my favorites, yeah. absolutely one of my favorites. You played on Ragtime, did you? Yes. I love that Yeah, soundtrack. I was a concertmaster for Ragtime, for Avalon, Toy Story, uh -huh. all those uh, wonderful the, movies. Uh, the Natural? The Natural, yes, oh, yeah. I did all that. That's real me. I, I mean, I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and the pay was much better. I hate to get mercenary about this, but when you're putting two kids through medical school, you need bucks. <laughs> Let me put it that way. So anyway, I stayed there for about 13 years in Hollywood, and I made over 650 films. You know, I was working night and day, and it was just wonderful. Uh, and and it's a different sort of music life, you only play the music once for the film and you never see it again. But it does give you an idea, imaginatively speaking, it's interesting because 
you're if there's a sad scene, you're playing sad music. And you know, and you have to use your wits and your musical intuition how to shape the music, whatever you can do as a concertmaster, but you have a lot of power as a concertmaster. You almost hire the string section of the orchestra because they, are, they look to you for, for um, uh, choosing the, the best people. So, so this is interesting. I mean, for me, yeah, being kind of a lay person to all yeah, this. Yeah. So, the concertmaster's job is to bring in the musician. Well, generally speaking, one the contractor hires the musicians, but the contractor is always in touch with the concertmaster about the string section. Who would you like in your string section? And once they have it on paper, they don't have to ask you anymore. Like John Williams, we always had a. Mm-hmm. We always had a, uh, a set uh, number of players and people that I felt were very good. Yeah, they and, gelled, and you got to really be a group. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so make we that did sound. a lot of John's uh, John's m- music. So, would you read the script of a scene? Would Not the have? script. No, no. You would see the scene played out. We, yeah, they would play the the movie. The conductors there with the orchestra, and in back of the orchestra is a big screen with the film on it and uh, with, the, with the movie. And the conductor would watch that, and they have all kinds of symbols uh, running along on the screen, uh, the slash, uh, bleep, 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 lights, to indicate to the conductor where he should be at one point with the music, because you have to time. Everything has to be timed so that they always say you, you, you play music for the closing of a door the slamming of a door gets a cut off or something like that and so you have to have it right, right at the moment the door closes you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really kind of a, uh, an amazing uh, profession I kind of enjoyed it but uh, after a while I got it's not it's not Beethoven and it ain't Bach it's not Mozart you know it's very good in its own way and but but I had enough and I thought I'd retire, but then a wonderful conductor by the name of Kent Nagano, who is is the conductor and chief uh, conductor of the Symphony and Opera in Hamburg, Germany, and has and, and also Montreal. He's the conductor of the uh, Montreal Symphony. He invited me. He was just appointed conductor of the Los Angeles Opera. And so I he asked me if I'd come down since I knew everybody in Hollywood and I was living here in Berkeley. Would I come down with him, try out for a year, play in the L.A. Uh, Opera Orchestra? And it's true, I knew I was, you know, in, in the business for about 13, 14 years, and I knew every every player, the good ones, bad ones, whatnot. So I was able to assist him greatly in, in choosing an orchestra. So we did that. And I'm just going to interrupt here for a second because I... I have talked to someone who's played for for ballet, but also played orchestral music. Right. And uh, this whole different orientation to timing, because these are people really doing things on stage, right. and you're adjusting right. accordingly. Right. And it kind of goes back to that movie thing. The door shuts exactly at that moment. <laughs> now you're in opera. Right. It's so, much different. Much of so which just is wonderful. You can yeah, open up my or our eyes to how that process works. What well, are, that process has been more or less st- the music anyway has been standardized. The directions these days 
has taken, as a matter of fact, the directors are becoming the kings of opera now because people don't want to hear a, a 1900 version of La Traviata. <laughs> you know? I mean, they, they know what... Although Zeffirelli has La Boheme, I mean, his thing ran, his production ran for 20, 30 years. I still call it back. But today the directors have updated the the timing to, to the present or to just a, just a little bit in the past. So it's much changed. The costuming has all changed. So that's where they're trying to interest audiences in seeing the same music, Music hasn't changed one note, but the timing, the the direction, the story has changed. You know? Yeah, how do you add edginess? I think is edginess is the thing this modern world seems to be very yes, interested yes, in. Yes, yes, dark and edginess. That's right. They, you know, uh, in the old days when they had soldiers' choruses, now they got guys with machine guns on their shoulders or <laughs> rifles as the part of the chorus, the soldiers' chorus. I mean. It's much more realistic than it was then. Then it was fantasy world. Now it's not. Now it's much, I don't know whether it's the times or what. what what's your sense of that? I know it's such a broad well, question. Oh, God, it's, 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 it's broad question. I, uh, I don't know. They're just trying to update. It's like updating Shakespeare. You know, they, they do that, too. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they bring it up right up to date uh, as if that's... Uh, I don't know whether that's good or bad. I'm not. I'm not here to decide that. Yeah, that's think, for bigger minds than mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, diplomatically said, I think is what I. Hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a, that's an interesting experience. Who'd you get to play? What singers did you get to join your violin music to? <laughs> because you know the voice and the violin. There's yeah, so many people refer yeah. to them being so similar. Well, the people that Anna uh, Natrepko, uh, 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 Giorgio, uh, Giorgio, uh, I forget her first name. I'm, I'm banging at it. But all kinds of views on the tenor. I mean, oh, Placido Domingo, who is my boss. <laughs> he, he's, how can I, sorry, Placido, how can I forget that? Mm -hmm. And the, there was Frederica von Stade, uh, who sang with us many times. So uh, we everybody came to L.A., you know, and, and so. Uh, and... Um did you also at times ever play viola or just violin? No, no, I, I, I'm smitten by the sound of the violin. That's your sound. Uh, that's my sound. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't play. I mean, I can play the viola. You know, I can because the fingering is the same. It's just a little larger instrument. But I don't really. I don't play it. You know, I don't. I, I don't. I don't read the clef really, and. Uh, so anyway, I, I stayed in Los Angeles for 10 years from 2000 to 2011, 2001, 2011. I know this is completely out of sequence for time, but you, earlier when I was setting up, you, we talked about doing this concert with Jack Benny, because of course everybody knows Jack Benny is the guy who says he's going to play the violin yeah. and then, you know, da 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 <laughs> But in fact, he was a good musician. Well, Jack... But he was nuts about the violin, too. He was crazy about it. As a matter of fact, when I was on his television show and got to see him a little bit for a few days, he was forever 
practicing, and they would have to call him out of his dressing room <laughs> because he seriously practicing. Yeah, oh yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. skip. No, not, no, not no, stick, no, as they say. No, yeah. no, seriously practicing. Yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, the show that the television show that I was on in 1965, the theme was the Stradivarius story in which he played the part of Antonio Stradivari. I've seen this clip. Have you? I have. It's on YouTube. It's very funny. His whole family making a violin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> is it really there? Yeah, it is. Oh, I, I didn't know you, that. You played on that? Yeah. No. Oh. Well, I didn't play in that skit, oh. but that's the show that I was on. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, I yeah. just found it recently. That's the show. That's the show. I, yeah, I was yeah. On the show. And it's very funny. Oh, it's a It's, it's a real takeoff. <laughs> as about, you know, Putting varnish on the violin is a very <laughs> difficult procedure. It takes, and what he had on the show <laughs> yeah. were these three barrels full of <laughs> varnish, and he would dip the you know <laughs> the, the fiddle in the varnish and hang it up on a clothesline to dry. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, oh, it was business. Yeah, know, yeah it, it was, was the uh, business. Was so funny, a Stradivari. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, that was yeah, that was. Uh, I have to find that if it's on. Uh, YouTube, I have to look for it. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. No. Let's listen now to Stuart Kanan perform the main title for the score for the film Ragtime by composer Randy Newman. So there was a time where Jack Benny came and performed as a benefit for yes. the school? Yes, yes, yes. I Oberlin? asked him several times. Once with San Francisco Symphony when I was there, oh. he came and did a benefit for us. I still remember the funny part where the we had one of our violinists from the symphony. He walks out in his overalls with a broom, and he stands there sweeping around Jack, and Jack has fiddling with his glasses or something, and he asks this pseudo-sweeper yeah, to hold his violin for him. And remember, the guy's in a cap and, and, and overall, 
and <laughs> is carrying a broom. He puts the broom down and he launches into the Mendelssohn concerto on the violin when Jack is standing there, <laughs> you know, and the audience was just in panic. I mean, they would laugh, so, because it was, it's really an extraordinary funny scene. Yeah, and it's I, Jack Benny, that classic you know, expression. Classic, yeah, that, that's, looks like, his, that's his look. You know, how did this come to me? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, and I also remember once I saw him on a live outdoor show in somewhere in Philadelphia, and, he comes out and talks to the audience, and he doesn't have his violin. And he said, my violin piece, he calls off stage, my violin piece. And a stagehand comes out with a fiddle and slides it across the floor <laughs> to Jack. And Jack is kind of... Well. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. Which, another one of those funny moments. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's, he's such a master. And you said he had... Quite a, uh, what's his violin? Well, it was, this, uh, it was. he had owned a Stradivarius. He, he, he finally, he Which bought Which one it was, do you know? I don't know the year, but the Los Angeles Philharmonic now has it, and it's being used by one of their players in the orchestra. I think the assistant concertmaster or something. It's right up there in the front of the of the orchestra, Jack Benny's Stradivarius. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, they, they, and he did he donate it? Or yes, yeah, oh yeah. He willed donated. it to them? Oh yeah, yeah. It's very generous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. You've had this wonderful experience with me. Well, I was, I was going to just say, when I left the uh, Los Angeles Opera after 10 years, Domingo and James Conlon, who was the conductor at the time, they decided to do something for me that would be a little different. And they endowed in perpetuity my name. It's now called the Stuart Canaan Concertmaster Chair of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. It's in all the programs all the time. So that doesn't very happen very often to a violinist. You know, it happens to a, a president <laughs> or a conductor, but it doesn't happen to a fiddle player, you know, as I refer to myself. Oh, you do. That's yeah, great. You know, I look at the world the way it is now, and the conflicts and uh, and the anxieties and the, this very strange political environment that's that's being driven so much by electronic media in so many different yeah. ways. And uh, I became fascinated in this project because, uh, I mean, it's just that sense of the violin is so old school. It's been around 300 years. We really haven't changed its shape <laughs> very much. We've tried. <laughs> it just seems to get the job done. It's, it's funny because there was a maker who made violas, he's living today, and his viola, the F-holes, you know, the bouts are not at all. It's, it's, it's totally different, but people play it. They, there's one in the symphony. And Isaac Stern came by once, and he looked at, at this instrument, which was totally misshapen. He said, did you leave it out in the sun too long? <laughs> <laughs> it looked as if it's melted <laughs> into a funny, funny shape. No, the fiddle has stayed the same, and it won't, it won't, it won't change. You know, but it's it's becoming more now. There, the the Asians are taking up where the Caucasians have left off. Mm -hmm. They're becoming the the new Heifetzes and Chryslers and all that. And the makers, even some of the makers, the tremendous yeah. number of violins oh my being God. made there. Oh my God! Yeah, it's the another world. Violins being made in 
China is extraordinary. So you had two sons? I have two sons. And neither one decided to take up music. <laughs> one son became, he's an oncologist and works in the Bay Area. And the other also became a doctor, but he didn't like it. And so he's written 10 books now, and they're all translated into 100 different languages. So, yeah, they're okay. <laughs> and he teaches at the University of Iowa, yeah. the writer's workshop. Yeah, Ethan, Ethan, Ethan Kanan. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's his latest book sitting right there on the top of that. That's uh, the... Uh, I, Has know. he ever taken on the subject of music or violins? Well... He does stick it in some of his novels, has music. He once mentioned that uh, there was an oboist and a young, young lady was playing the oboe in this book. And she played a Bernelli sonata for oboe. I said, there's no sonata by that guy for oboe. I checked with one of my Hollywood colleagues. He said, oh, yes, <laughs> it's very well known among oboes. And he picked it out, you know. <laughs> I don't know whether he did it to embarrass me, <laughs> but it's in the book and it's correct, you know, and I, because he's very keen on uh, editing, you know. He, 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 he watches the, uh, the language. Uh, he's wonderful. He, he writes in a marvelous language way, you know. So anyway. it's, there's you know some similarity in the sense that musician deals with only a certain limited number of possible notes, <laughs> and what a friend of mine because I do some writing and they say you know you spend most of your time rearranging twenty six letters <laughs> and I think what six characters that's it that's your whole right. life that's all that's you right. do that's right and yet there seems to be magic in it. And, well, uh, someone said to me, you know, I went from playing ten years in the San Francisco Symphony, and then I went to Hollywood, then I went to Los Angeles Opera. So I've had three pretty different cultures, you know. And they said, could you really play opera? I said, man, the notes are the same. They just arrange in a different order. So that's, not, that's no problem. You know, you can play opera, you can play symphony. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. So just tell me for a second about establishing the new century. When I had fully decided to retire and came back to... Uh, Oh, this was, no, actually, this was when I first time, this was 1992. I came back and I was thinking of retiring. And some people here, and local people, asked me in San Francisco, they gave me this idea of a conductorless orchestra. I said, God, I would die to. to try to form something like that. Why? What's because it? I had so many years been having to look at conductors. <laughs> Somebody having to tell me what to do <laughs> all the time. You know, it's you have to bury your own and you have to do what they ask because they're the boss in, uh, in opera, symphony, or the movies. I mean, it's all, all like that. So we formed this we got 15 players all strings and started out and it's now celebrating its 25th year in existence so it's done pretty well i i don't get around that much anymore but i you know i watch them and, and hear them and all that but it, it was fascinating because just to make up the 
interpretation, which is what a conductor does, mm-hmm. and to do it on yourself and to, and to solicit feedback from the musicians in the orchestra. Is, so it is a it's it's a collaborative, yeah, collaborative. You know, uh, uh, almost in Berkeley we call it collective collective yes yeah, exactly yeah, it has that kind of democratic yeah or yeah whatever it is left of center kind of of idea. course at some time I have to put my foot down because there'll be too many adv- adv- too much advice <laughs> from too few people <laughs> so you have to put your foot down but generally it's worked you know? so do you some ever played with them in the beginning where you'd oh. be playing and then you'd stop and you're you're your well, bow would not become at the, your not at the concert, at the <laughs> rehearsal. Oh, <laughs> rehearsals? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, sure. I learned oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was the leader, and the leader does have the authority and according to the terms of the, of the orchestra to make the musical decisions. Yeah, so yeah, I, I did that for... I did it for seven years, and that's when Kent Nagano asked me to come back to... Los Angeles to try out the concert master position for a year with the uh, L.A. Opera Orchestra. They were just, and that's, once I did that, I said, an opera is just so great. I, my wife and I are both nuts about opera. Yeah. yeah, much more than symphony because there's more chance of something wrong <laughs> happening in opera. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many people involved. And uh, somebody could f- fall off of <laughs> something, or or a costume could rip, or you know who knows what could go wrong. But symphony, <laughs> it's like sim- somebody going to car races. Car- now wait a minute. So what? Somebody going to car races. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's the excitement. Yeah. yeah but so this is interesting. Maybe we should, uh, just uh, now. I'm going to say end, but um, this idea of imperfection fascinates me. The need for imperfection in the world. Imperfection. Imperfection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so often we drive ourselves towards yeah. with ideas and concepts of, of excellence. And, of course, of course. And uh, just as you get older, there's a different wisdom that comes in life. Because yes. you're dealing with so many imperfections. Your body's giving you of imperfections, <laughs> whether you <laughs> yeah. want it or not. Of course, of and course. And either you get, you know, you're resentful about it or bitter or... or or you, your philosophy changes, and you start to say, "Yeah, I lose this, but I gain this." You know, what have I gained? Where is this coming from? What does imperfection mean? Yeah, that's a, exactly exactly. It's much more important to to convey the meaning, you know, than to be perfect. I mean, that's uh, putting it simply. That's, uh, but but opera allows you so much more. Uh, there's so many more things that can go wrong. I always look at it in the reverse way yeah. <laughs> than it can go right, than it can go wrong, you know. So uh, it's always, but you got to adapti- be heads up. The adaptability there. Yeah. There's a wonderful series uh, about Shakespeare called Slings and Arrows. I, I just dearly love it. It was done by the Canadian public <laughs> right. television people, I guess. And uh, they did a whole series. Each year was a different uh, play that this uh, company puts on with right. all the internal politics and envies and you know it's very well done very funny but very true and the best love letter to Shakespeare I've ever seen I mean just adore Shakespeare and what he was doing in, in his work so the first year is Hamlet there's six shows the second year is Macbeth and the third year six shows is Lear Lear yeah but in the Macbeth one he has a very good actor uh, who's very well known, and he comes up there to do the Macbeth character. 
but he's always wanting to stay in his safety zone, what he knows. And he's got a celebrity status. This is what people expect. And the director knows he's not going to get the performance of Macbeth he really wants from this guy because the guy's resisting certain ideas. And just before the show starts, the opening of the show, he blocks certain entrances. So when the guy gets there and he's going to go on, it's blocked. He can't go that way. And he has to run around another way. And he's so upset. And he's now sweaty. And he's all worked up. And, of course, it turns out, you know, in this to be a brilliant performance. He gets to the core of the feeling. Yeah. You know, it opens that up. Yeah. And I think sometimes maybe that's where I'm going with the imperfection. Ah. (laughs) Uh, So I understand that... uh, in recent years, and I don't know when it first started, but people began to come to you and say, could you do the exact concert, the same pieces that you had done for Truman, Stalin, and Churchill? Yes, for, for some reason, when people, you know, in a way it's an historical, I mean, it's, it's one of the great historical events, and people are captivated by the thought that somebody who was there at that moment is able, standing in front of you, able to play the music that he played and to answer questions as the, the, most, the, the most asked question is, what was it like? And what did they look like? Uh, I said, well, the main thing that I got from them that they were all three small people. <laughs> and he, I was just reading a book where Truman calls Stalin a little squirt because he was so short. But could you imagine the the ego that Stalin had to do what he did for so many years? You know, just uh, in, in, incredible. But anyway, the, the upshot is that people just love to, you were there, and they would say, yeah, I was. And uh, and so they invite you now to oh, perform. Oh yeah, I'm, and I'm, I'm playing all over the. Uh, I mean, I must have done about eight, nine performances. The same performance in San Francisco. Who do you have play the, piano? Yes, I I have a pianist. Uh, of course, Gene List is not alive any longer. So he's. I need I need a pianist just to play these. So I just do my part of the program. Oh yes. <laughs> There was a very important part that I I forgot when when Gene was playing his little pieces, you know Chopin or whatever Nocturnes. Uh, uh, he played. I did. He never did this before, but he suddenly launched into the theme of the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto. Da 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 di da di da da di da di into the theme of the Tchaikovsky piano group. and when he finished, he he did some shortened version of it, you know, about a minute, minute and a half, whatever. Stalin leaped up from his chair, grabbed a a pony of vodka from his aide. And yelled out a toast to the. Mu- I yelled out. I mean, we imagine he said a toast to the musicians, which was astonishing. And Gene was standing there, sort of said, "What do you say to Stalin <laughs> when you were just a pianist?" <laughs> but anyway, that was just one of those great moments that we'll never forget. And he just decided on the spur of the moment. Uh, yeah, he just decided to play the Tchaikovsky. 
Yeah, he thought maybe, well, Stalin, of course, would know that piece, you know. And Stalin evidently did know music. I mean, he was, was aware of and acquainted with music. But, you know, you never know. Hitler was also a lover of Wagner. So <laughs> music music doesn't mean anything. I mean, in the wrong hands. So it's, uh, anyway, that uh, I, I wanted to uh, tell you about that little event. So I always have my pianist play the Tchaikovsky theme and then, I explained to the audience that that was at the point that Stalin leaped up out of his chair and and <laughs> congratulated the musicians. <laughs> so anyway, that's... That's great. Thank well, you so much. You're quite welcome. Interesting. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I would like to finish with two quotes from former President Harry Truman. It is understanding that gives us an ability to have peace. When we understand the other fellow's viewpoint, and he understands ours, then we can sit down and work out the differences. And if I hadn't been President of the United States, I would have probably ended up as a piano player in a body house. Thank you.